0: Welcome to episode two of Who Who Hail, a championship podcast. I'm Kathy Chong, and I'm here with the charming and clever Jeff Ko.
1: Now that we've recorded the first episode of the podcast, how do you feel, Kathy, about our project?
0: I'm feeling pretty good about it, Jeff. I was really pleasantly surprised by the feedback that we got from our friends who listened to the first episode, I remember telling you before we recorded that this was a passion project that I wanted to do anyways, because we love talking about sports and recapping games. And if we had one listener all season, I would be very pleased. And we surpassed that last week. And I'm really excited.
1: And one of the central rules about creative writing or about recording a podcast is that you don't talk about the reception that has gotten on the actual event. The work should stand for itself. But I I have been really pleasantly surprised by the amount of very constructive, very positive feedback that people have given us. They've really listened to the end and engaged with the material. And I think you found that to be the case too, right?
0: I did find that to be the case. It's really nice, the support that we've gotten so far. How do you feel about the creative process, Jeff?
1: I've learned so much about recording, post-production. I think the trick to any podcast is three parts, right? So one is actually recording the words and turning it into an MP3 file. Second is uploading it. It's like website hosting. You upload it to a podcast host. And then third is advertising, which we're still doing ongoing listing it on a podcast directory. But these three pieces are so different from the last time I did it in college. And I feel like having now invested and gotten our first episode out, me and you could do a podcast topic about anything.
0: We've learned so much throughout the process, and I'm excited for the journey ahead. We can't wait to talk about the storylines and games from week one of college football.
1: The week one terminology gets more and more confusing every year, and I'm very much a traditionalist, but I do enjoy how in Asia, the age of mega TV money and contracts, they've tried every which way to extend the window for fall football. This year, I feel like late August, there's already football. Here on Hoo Who Hill, we're all about having more football.
0: I'm all about that. It's been a long summer for me without college sports. Did you get to watch the Week Zero Florida Yes That Miami game?
1: I love how you've adopted the Michigan fan terminology. Miami of Ohio is NTM, not that Miami. And by extension, the Hurricanes are jokingly, yes that Miami.
0: I was so confused when you first explained it to me.
1: Even ESPN does it. I remember I was in an airport bar one time and I saw a girl wearing a Miami, Ohio jersey. So I asked her, do you call yourselves not that Miami as well? And she was a little bit offended for a moment. And then we started joking that even ESPN does it. When it's not that Miami, the chyron, the ticker goes M, parenthetical, OH at the bottom of the screen.
0: Jeff, I know that you think everything from Ohio is bad and just seeing those letters I'm sure upsets you.
1: Every time I see OH, I expect Ohio fans to jump out and complete the rest of the chant. One of the great things, though, is that Ohio fans seem to not be able to spell that four-letter word down south so they get the chant wrong when, when, when they physically each person does one of the letters. There are all these great internet memes about the letters being lined up in the wrong way. But we're definitely not an Ohio podcast here. But I did watch that Florida-Miami game. I have a lot of friends who went to school in Gainesville. Shout out to my boy Daryl Saylor, who's going to be a guest host later on the season. He knows a lot about football, and he's been a lifelong Florida and Michigan fan. I love the Catholics versus convicts history and how Miami has embraced it. There are all these series between Notre Dame and Miami and, you know, being a Michigan fan, anyone that beats Notre Dame will throw a hat in with them. This year's turnover chain looks amazing.
0: The turnover chain?
1: Here, let me show you a picture of it. People joke about podcasts being very visual, so I'll also describe it to you. There's a giant emblazoned 305. That's the Miami era code on the front, which makes you want to jump up and yell, shout at Uncle Luke.
0: And of course, we're a big Pitbull podcast here. We love Mr. Worldwide.
1: Blog loves him too. Brian just added a Mr. Worldwide award to his post-game report. I think he's still figuring out who to award it to. So Brian does this amazing thing where he rewatches the game. It's called a UFR and upon further review. And he assigns points to players for every good play, negative points to every negative play. And I think the idea behind the Mr. Worldwide award is the player that helps out the team and all the other players the most.
0: Did you learn anything from the Florida Yes That Miami game?
1: We always end up playing Florida somehow in the past few years, more than some of the Big Ten West teams, I think even more than Wisconsin. And of course, last year, with all the injuries, the bowl game against Florida didn't go so well for Michigan. But I always try to watch and scout them since we play them so much.
0: I like how you do the gator chomp at fans who wear Florida gear. And sometimes we realize they're not real fans and they don't chomp back.
1: I know, right? What's that about? I think sometimes people see the Florida orange when they're on vacation and they buy a shirt and take it home without realizing that it's Gator gear. I also watched some of the Notre Dame Louisville game, that was also on a weird non-week one Saturday day. Always a good excuse here for us on Hoo Hoo Hale to watch another game under the guise of scouting for the podcast.
0: Oh Notre Dame! Obviously the Hoosiers are the best team in Indiana, but here in this podcast we try to pay attention to the lesser in-state teams like Purdue. What do you think about Notre Dame, and how did they look?
1: I think it's never good when the ESPN recap, the first few lines, are as follows. Briefly caught off guard by Louisville's intensity. uh The fighting Irish worked harder than expected to put away the rebuilding Cardinals. The Cardinals obviously are a rebuilding team. They have a new coach. For us, watching Notre Dame, given that it's game one, I think as a Michigan fan, I have to withhold judgment until we play them. Since last season, I got so irrationally exuberant and... I was so excited for that game to change everything for us. And then the result happened. What did you think, Kathy, about last season?
0: That was hard to watch. There was so much hype surrounding Michigan last year. And for the very first game of the season, everyone came running out. I think we were expecting to have a really decent shot against Notre Dame. And just the way the game played out, it was sad for Michigan fans. But luckily, we were able to come up with some other wins later on during the season.
1: The most interesting thing happened in the fourth quarter of Notre Dame's win when Irish quarterback Ian Book, he dropped back in the pocket. The Louisville defensive line started rushing him, so he just threw the ball as hard as he could out of bounds to escape the pressure. And poor Elizabeth Scott, she's a Louisville Ladybirds dance team dancer, and she absolutely gets clobbered by the throwaway pass.
0: Didn't she say something that, you know, well, my nose is crooked, but I'll always have a good story to tell?
1: Yeah, credit goes to Elizabeth Scott. She's in the running for having the podcast named after her this week. Although we're going to give it to to the kicker from Nevada, which you'll hear about. And we're also going to talk about some of the week one storylines. And this one didn't make the cut. But full credit to Elizabeth Scott, who leaned into it on Twitter. She said that her nose made her famous. She thanked Ian Buck. And one thing that Elizabeth Scott would want us to clarify here on the podcast is that she is not a cheerleader. She's a Louisville Ladybirds dancer on the dance team.
0: That's a good distinction to make. And just like Liz, my nose is crooked too. And I think, you know, if I had the opportunity to be so close where a ball could potentially hit my nose, i would so athletic. chances.
1: Yeah, you're, I was just, just gonna say, you're so athletic that you'd catch the ball, right?
0: You know me, you've seen me after the Big 10 10K races when they let us compete against other folks in line heaving the ball towards the circles. You know I have a good arm.
1: You do have a good arm. I think Shay and maybe Penix may out-throw you, but if you were, and we love Peyton Ramsey here on the podcast, but I think you can definitely get into a throwing competition with him.
0: I'm up for the challenge. Let's bring it. So Jeff, is Michigan any closer to winning the championship after game one?
1: Every football season here on Hoo Who Hail, this being a true championship podcast, we'll break down whether our respective teams, Michigan for me,
0: Indiana for me,
1: took steps to get closer to the championship.
0: And feel free to write us fan mail, or hate mail if that's what it takes. We'll make fun about it on the show, about whether you agree or disagree with our analysis.
1: We got two comments on Facebook, right?
0: We did. So Jeff, people are curious. Is Harbaugh on the hot seat? Does he deserve his job if he doesn't beat OSU this year?
1: I think all of the hot seat rumors about Jim Harbaugh are started by rival fan bases that want to affect our recruiting and tell players... Oh, Jim Harbaugh's leaving from the NFL, so don't play for Michigan. But it doesn't make sense to me. On the one hand, and John Bacon always says this, on the one hand, Harbaugh's on the hot seat. And on the other hand, any NFL team is going to line up a brink truck, the way that John Bacon describes it, loaded with money at the Harbaugh restaurants to hire him. Those two things just don't line up. In year five, Jim Harbaugh being a Michigan quarterback, he really wants to be Ohio State. The fans want him too. But if he doesn't, that decision is athletic director Warren Manuel's to make and Ward is in Harbaugh's camp, so I don't think he's on the hot seat.
0: The other question that we got, we mentioned last week that we had long-suffering fan bases for both Michigan and Indiana, and we got a contrary comment that said, Michigan fans don't deserve to say that. It's not the same. Do you agree?
1: So Michigan has a football title from 1997. That's the most recent one. Does Indiana have a football title?
0: I don't think I've seen a banner or heard of a football title, unfortunately, but this is the year that matters and this is the year that we'll take it.
1: I think sometimes fans see Dez out there in a suit trying to stay neutral while repping Michigan. We see Charles Woodson out there. Those are media members that have transitioned really well from a successful athletic career and and they capture a large part of the public's imagination. And so people see them and say, these men are so successful. How can your fan base be long-suffering? But on the other hand, 1997 was 22 years ago. Maybe this is our year. And as we said last time, maybe Indiana and Michigan can win the title at the same time. I do think Michigan got a little bit closer to the title this past week. We'll tell you more in the game recap later on that you all came to see. We saw our new offensive coordinator, Josh Gaddis, try out some things and run some experimental plays.
0: You were worried all offseason about what, whether Harbaugh would actually hand over the keys and the controls to the offense to this new, young, unproven guy from Alabama, especially since Harbaugh has such a veteran quarterback background.
1: QBs who turn into coaches get really attached to the offenses, the ones that they're used to, how they learned, how they're trained. And of course, Harbaugh learned under Bow three yards in a cloud of dust type of offense.
0: We love the run, run, pass, play sequence here in the podcast what we call the Mike DeBoard. I do think it was time for Michigan's offense to modernize a little bit, especially since you all have to play Ohio State at the end of the season every year.
1: Say what you want about the man, but Jim Joseph Harbaugh is a man who makes great hiring decisions. There's a great story on the Harbaugh Family Podcast about how the year Michigan has the number two defense. I think this was 2015. Harbaugh at the end of the season looks up in the college football statistics who had their first defense in college football A man Jim had never met before, other than in games.
0: And none other than Mr. Don Brown, who was then defensive coordinator at Boston College.
1: Yeah, and he gives the man a call, out of the blue. He invites him to Ann Arbor to interview. Don Brown, who's just as geeky and passionate about football, has a great conversation with Jim Harbaugh, and Jim Harbaugh hands Don Brown the keys to the defense.
0: That's a really great story. I can't imagine doing that if you're too proud or have too big of an ego. And that's often the media perception of Jim Harbaugh.
1: I think there really are two types of perceptions of Harbaugh, from me being a fan, studying the program, and his media persona. But I think anyone who has the humility to just look up number one in the phone book and call him and give him full control, that's amazing. And we'll see whether that's true of the Michigan offense as well. Hiring the offensive coordinator who coached Tua uh, in such a great year for Alabama— wouldn't you agree, Kathy, that Michigan offense has had the tendency to climb up in key clutch situations?
0: I would agree with that.
1: All this experimentation, the number of plays they've run, how much faster Michigan's offense looks. So far from game one, it does look like Gaddis has the keys to the Cadillac.
0: And you alluded to this event before, but talk a little bit more about the John U. Bacon book launch event we went to last week.
1: So Who Who Hale took a visit to the John U. Bacon overtime book launch event. It's always great to see John. He does this thing whenever he writes a book about Michigan. One week before the big Ann Arbor launch of the book, he'll come down to Chicago to do a pre-launch event, practice his presentation, and get the kinks out.
0: He definitely did a great job telling anecdotes from the book to get us readers interested without giving it all away. He had so many that the Michigan Alumni Club leaders actually had to tap him on the shoulder and tell him that he was running out of time.
1: You know how some movie trailers for comedies, the funniest jokes are in the trailer? Mm-hmm. John tells stories, and you want to read up more about it. The book is called Overtime, and I'm about a quarter of the way in. It's phenomenal. John has really outdone himself. He flips back and forth between stories from last season and from the Harbaugh brothers going up, and it's just so natural. By the way, Kathy, who is your favorite Harbaugh brother?
0: Man, Jeff, that's a really tough question because I do like different aspects of both of them. There's a funny story that John Bacon told us where Um, A few years ago, between the Super Bowl championship where John's team was against Jim's team, John's team ended up winning, as we all know, and Jim actually had a really hard time giving brother John a hug at the end. It sounds like after some coercing and John being like, you're not going to give me a hug? What's the deal? Jim kind of gave him a half, you know, pat on the arm.
1: Especially since it was national media and all the cameras were on both of them.
0: Exactly, and I think that's why he did it. It turns out that for several months after the game, Jim wouldn't pick up the call from John.
1: Dad had to intervene. Dad had to call John and say, hey, if you don't call Jim, he'll never call you back, so you must call him.
0: That's so funny. Jim is so quirky. I love the side of him that I saw on Amazon's series, All or Nothing. I think because of that, I have so much respect for both brothers, but I have seen more of Jim. So at the moment, my favorite Harbaugh is Jim Harbaugh.
1: And that's a big thing coming from an Indiana fan.
0: (laughs) That is true.
1: The scenes of the book are so punchy and they all inform each other. It isn't awkward when it flips back from past to last season. The book is just so terrifically paced and the scenes are so well drawn, even more so than John's last book, Endzone, which I loved. I think John has really mastered his craft to pump out a book so quickly right after last season and before this season, a book that's this good.
0: I cannot wait to read it after you're done. It seems like it'll be so fun to read about the things on the field that happened, since we actually lived them together with the players and watched it live the last couple of years.
1: This way we also get the backstory as well, the the behind-the-scenes stuff. And how about you, Kathy? From Week 1, how have your predictions for Indiana fared so far? Are the Hoosiers any closer to the title after Game 1, or are we still on 300-to-1 odds?
0: I will say we are closer to the title after Game 1, but I think we need more games to see. I am super excited about the new offense with new offensive coordinator, Kalen DeBoer. And surprise, surprise, we have a new quarterback, Michael Penix. Makes for a very exciting game to watch.
1: I definitely think that Peyton Ramsey, as much as we love him here on the podcast, is a high floor but lower ceiling quarterback, the way that the Indiana blogs describe him. High floor, or lower ceiling probably aligns more with our prince, Mike DeBoer's run, 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 and then run some more philosophy if we pass the ball, we don't know where it's going to go kind of approach to the game.
0: Oh, Mike DeBoard. We love Mike DeBoard on this podcast, can tell. And yes, Penix is definitely more explosive and dynamic. More to come during our game day recap.
1: Here are the top three storylines that I thought were the most iconic and memorable from week one. Number one was the Vols. Kathy, you have some connections with the Vols, right?
0: I do, Jeff. My dad went to Tennessee, both for medical school and for undergrad, so he is a big Volunteers fan. As I mentioned last week, I didn't watch football too closely growing up, so I don't know too much about the team, but I know to some point they were a legacy team. They had a really great record and a great reputation, and I know recently, weren't they the worst team in the SEC last year?
1: So the crazy statistic about the Vols is, not only were they the worst team, But the very last game that the Vols had played against any other SEC team, they had lost. So they had essentially a full round-robin regular season loss to every single other SEC team.
0: That's the statistic that I heard as well from last year. And I think going into this first game, they're playing Georgia State. Didn't have to be a blowout by any means, but I think folks just kind of thought it was a given that Tennessee would take this game home.
1: I personally, and Michigan Twitter personally, has had fights with the Vols on Twitter. And I found myself in a Twitter flame war against the Vols. And it was twice, right? It was during basketball season and it was during football season. Mm -hmm. So basketball season, you know, Kathy, they were ranked number three or something and they They hadn't played anybody. Mm -hmm. And they kept saying that they were better than Michigan. And we were like, no, you're not better than Michigan. (laughs) And then over the offseason, so many Michigan players, Michigan recruits, Michigan players transferring to the Vols. Michigan recruits losing recruiting battles. Vols football took some of the Michigan players. And so all the Vols' criterati were out in force, flaming Jim Harbaugh, flaming me, saying that you guys will never win a recruiting battle anymore. The Vols are going to field these amazing four-star, five-star players. And we're going to be amazing and see what happens, Kathy.
0: Yeah, that's really unfortunate, and that was definitely like a lot of talk and hype for something that just didn't pan out. That was an unfortunate loss and surprise for everyone, I think, for the Vols this week. How about the rest of the SEC? You've been hearing that perhaps this conference is overrated. What do you think about the opinions on that?
1: I think the conference this year, with all the losses last week, I think it really is a bipolar conference where up at the top, they're really good, and up at the bottom, it's bad. But I definitely think Big Ten has been a strong conference one of the strongest conferences in the entirety of college football. We have the most ranked teams, we have the best teams, and I think that's played out.
0: I would say that. I think I heard that the Big Ten has seven ranked teams. Indiana should be one of them. I don't understand why they are not. I think we have seven ranked teams. And you're right, I did hear that for the SEC. While the whole conference might not be great, case in point, the balls that we just talked about, sorry, Dad, but the top teams are what matter. And so given that, you've still got your heavy hitters, your and your Alabamas, and then those kind of make up the reputation of your conference.
1: The second storyline and the most iconic image from the weekend was Hugh Freeze coaching from the coaching booth up in the sky from his hospital bed.
0: When you said that to me, Jeff, I couldn't absolutely believe it. Just imagine a guy laying there trying to, I don't know, just recover, but let alone coach a game.
1: And Q wasn't actually that successful because Liberty Football didn't score a single point.
0: What's the connection between Freeze and, and Michigan?
1: So we're not a Hugh Freeze podcast here. We're definitely not a Hugh Freeze podcast we a Syracuse podcast, so Coach <laughs> Dino Babers and those amazing halftime victory speeches that we play to motivate ourselves before a big hike or before a big run. Mm-hmm. And there's that image of Dino giving a thumbs up up to the coaching booth <laughs> and Hugh Freeze waving from his hospital bed. The reason why there's a tangential connection between Hugh Freeze and the Michigan team is Shay Patterson, Michigan's starting quarterback. He was the number one high school recruit. He chose Ole Miss football.
0: That's really interesting. So you're saying that Michigan wasn't the first pick for Shea Patterson?
1: No. Coach Freeze actually lied to Shea Patterson about the different scandals and how much penalties the Ole Miss program would suffer. Shea Patterson was able, after a lot of legal wrangling, to transfer to Michigan to play for Coach Harbaugh. And Shea Patterson did have connections with Michigan. I think his family grew up in the area. They all were Michigan fans. So I think he arrived at his dream home.
0: That's good. So disappointing with what happened with Freeze there, but ended up working out for both Shea and the Michigan team, as we'll see the rest of the season.
1: And here on the podcast, of course, our position is that if coaches can leave any year, players should be able to too. And Coach Harbaugh has been ringing a gong in the media on this subject.
0: One other storyline that we'll want to talk about this week is Northwestern. We love Coach Fitz on this podcast. What happened this week though, Jeff?
1: There are two nerd bowls, right? North- oh,
0: the Nerd Bowl. Yes, Stanford, yeah, Stanford Northwestern. Stanford, Duke.
1: I think who hails a big Duke football podcast. We're not a big Duke basketball. We don't like no Duke way. basketball. But it's kind of funny and cute to see Duke football try to launch its fledgling program. And we're a big fan of their football coach. But so the Nerd Bowl and Stanford's pretty good. But I think the big storyline is actually tied into a later segment on this podcast about the Vegas spread, which we'll explain But it was the first bad B of the college football season.
0: Yeah, just from what I've heard, it looks like Coach Fitz does have a lot of work for improvement with his team. We are optimistic, and I do believe Northwestern is ranked higher than Indiana at the moment in the Big Ten, which is pretty crazy to me.
1: So a bad B is in the last minute when you have a total shift, one play, that totally shifts from you're over the line or under the line. So the line was six and a half, and Northwestern was covering the line at that time. And then what happened was the quarterback fumbles, and Northwestern fails to recover the ball, even though you have all these offensive linemen that are jumping on top of it. And then Stanford scores to extend the lead so that Northwestern doesn't cover. Everyone who bet on Northwestern now lose money, and this is the last second play. And you're watching these Northwestern players try to take the ball back together with what you bet on the game. That was the first bad beat of the season which is why here on Hail, we don't bet on the results of individual games. That's right. It's time for the game day recap, what you came here to see. Each week, we'll talk about the Michigan game and the Indiana game and what it means for our season, the things that happened on the field, and whether there are any funny, interesting stories. We'll start off with the Indiana game versus Ball State. Kathy, how was the pregame hype and what was that like?
0: The hype was great. There was a lot of hype around this Indiana football team for a couple of reasons. First, we'll start out with hashtag 9, Windiana. nine win 9-Win-Indiana. Basically, we're saying that we'll beat the first three teams we play, Ball State, Czech, Eastern Illinois, and UConn. And then we'll beat either OSU or Michigan State.
1: And Michigan State, that might very well happen. Their run game is atrocious.
0: I'm looking forward to that. Wreckers, Maryland, Nebraska, Michigan.
1: I don't think that's going to happen. You guys, as you said last episode, you have a 50-game losing streak against us. That's not going to happen.
0: I also said this year was the year, though. And then our bowl game.
1: Does this account for you guys losing the bucket?
0: It does account for us losing the bucket. Keep in mind, this is not my opinion. I actually do think we'll take the bucket. This is
1: Crimson Quarry's yes, this road is Crimson to Quarry's. 9, Indiana.
0: Exactly. I'm going to say on record, I do think we'll take the bucket this year. But the teams I just listed is according to Crimson Quarry.
1: So easy solution for who hail. Just swap out Michigan for Purdue and we're both in agreement.
0: We'll see what happens.
1: You mentioned Nebraska as a team that you're going to beat. Why don't you tell us about your funny experience with the Nebraska football program?
0: Man, so I do want to mention Kirkwoods again. So last week on this podcast, we spoke about our experience trying to watch an Indiana game there, and they had every game turned on to the Nebraska game. There was not one TV on all floors turning on the Indiana game, and the sound was only for Nebraska. Well, this week on Saturday, college game day, I was riding in the car past Kirkwoods and there was a huge sign in the window that said, welcome Huskers. Beautiful sign, took up the whole window. And then in a teeny tiny corner, you see the littlest IU flag next to it. No welcome sign, nothing. I didn't step into the bar, but I can guarantee that they were playing the Nebraska game and not the Indiana game. I understand that Nebraska might be a little bit better at football at the moment, but where's our love?
1: Where is the love? How did the decision to host this first game at Lucas Oil down in Indianapolis for the Indiana Ball State game work out for you?
0: I figured that both schools felt that it'd be a great idea to bring it to the, the state's capital for the big game at Lucas Oil Stadium. I saw a picture that someone tweeted from the game, and I was very shocked. Unfortunately, I saw a lot more blue than red. And what I mean by that is blue blue. <laughs> blue is in the color of the seats. Jeff totally took advantage of that right there. I know I would have gone for sure if I could have. It's super exciting. It was Lucas Oil, even if it wasn't anywhere near as full as the big house, which we'll get to.
1: We ran the Indianapolis half marathon. Like We ran, ran the first half of the marathon route, and we ran past mm-hmm. the stadium. And it's always really cool because it gives you a little boost as you're running 13 miles.
0: It does. There's a huge picture of Andrew Luck, which, you know, another topic might have to be changed soon, but it does give you a really cool vibe and feeling as you're going Mm -hmm. past it.
1: And so tell us about the other hype around the game, why everyone was glued to their TV.
0: Absolutely. So this was a big quarterback decision. Coach Allen said it was one of the hardest things he had to do, but he announced during game week, so just only shy of a couple days before the game, that Michael Penix would be playing quarterback as opposed to Peyton Ramsey, who we love.
1: That was heartbreaking, right? When we saw those tweets and that news conference, our hearts were broken. But I think we kind of warmed to the idea, right? Like trust Coach, trust trust what he wants to do.
0: We did. I mean, I had Peyton winning the Heisman. I had him taking us all the way. So it was heartbreaking when we heard the news. But I want to trust Coach Allen. I want to trust Kalen DeBoer. And I do feel really happy with what I saw with Michael Penix. So we'll just see what happens this season. And this was because Coach Allen and Kalen DeBoer, they want to see the big plays. They want to see the potential big upside. And I've just got to support that.
1: And how did Penix do?
0: He did really well. So he started out the game with a few short passes. They looked easy, but the main point was to build some confidence and make it very catchable for the team. Then later in the first quarter, you saw a big explosive play by Pennix. He threw a long pass of 75 yards to Nick Westbrook, and Nick Westbrook was able to make that touchdown.
1: How did Westbrook look as a receiver? Was he running routes well?
0: I'm a little torn, so I would say Nick Westbrook did have that monumental 75-yard touchdown pass. But then later, he did miss a very wide open pass. I mean, Penix threw that ball perfectly in the third quarter, and he dropped it. And it's like, you just you just got to catch those.
1: So you've told us about the Penix upside. What about the risks of playing someone like him? We've always talked about how Ramsey is just more solid and dependable.
0: Yeah, and you did see that in the first game here. Penix did have two interceptions early in the first half. But I do think that, you know, this is his first year. He's warming up. He's getting a feel for the team and on game day. And I will give him credit. He handled that adversity really well. Kalen DeBoer as well. He allowed Penix to keep passing the ball. He had faith in his quarterback to keep passing.
1: Any other key players from watching the game?
0: Yeah, I just wanna give a few shout outs here. Logan Justice had a great day he had a 48 yard field goal 30 yard field goal in the second quarter another 49 yard field goal to close out the first half and then a 50 yard field goal in the fourth quarter and he made all of them. Another person that I want to mention is one that we gave a big shout out to last week and that's Stevie Scott. He had his first touchdown in the third quarter power run game there. His second touchdown in the fourth quarter is what pushed Indiana to our 31-17 lead after a two-point conversion. So I still have a lot of faith that we'll see Stevie break a lot of records this year.
1: We love Stevie.
0: We do. Jeff, let's switch gears here. Let's talk about Michigan's victory over Middle Tennessee this past weekend. How would you describe the anticipation for the new offensive coordinator, Josh Gaddis? Did he live up to the hype? Did he take out his playbook?
1: Michigan fans, we had all our hearts excited. And then in the first play of the game, Shea Patterson fumbles. And we were all just like, man. And and all the fans, all the anti-fans, all our rivals started tweeting, how very on brand for Michigan. And I just got really upset and I kind of threw my phone against the wall, turned off Twitter. But I think then the Wolverines, they go on a 40-7 to run after that fumble. So I think all things considered, it worked out pretty great. My thoughts are that Josh Gaddis was able to break open in the playbook and experiment and try new things. And some of those new things didn't work because all those double quarterback plays, and you watched these too, Kathy, right? Like They all just kind of looked funky and weird, mm-hmm. even though we love Dylan McCaffrey on this podcast. Both of them at the same time, they didn't know where they were going. They ran into each other. They got snuffed out by Middle Tennessee. Those plays just didn't really work.
0: You're right. I will say Dylan McCaffrey runs a lot better than I thought he would for a six-foot-five guy, but it was very confusing, and I know when I saw Dylan run out, Shea was still on the field. I I was like, what's what's going on? And it felt like Twitter was in agreement with me.
1: And some other statistics. So Michigan ran 78 plays, a number they only hit once in the previous two seasons, so it's definitely much more up-tempo, gives us more belief and comfort that he's the one who's calling the plays instead of Jim Harbaugh. I think the brightest spot from the entire game was freshman running back Zach Charbonnet. I saw Zach Charbonnet's tape over the offseason and just got so excited, so excited. And I was really surprised when a lot of the Michigan bloggers said he was a third string based on what they were seeing in training camp. I was a little bit disappointed. But Charbonnet comes out here and he's like running strong. He gets out to the second level. He like jukes. He makes the right cuts. He just feels very natural and comfortable. The other amazing thing is... On pass plays, Charbonnet is just able to pass protect, which is so key for a freshman running back. No matter how well you run, how well you spot the blocks and the gaps, if you can't pass protect, you're not out there. For someone so young, just that kind of innate knowing where the defense is coming and protecting Shea, that looks amazing.
0: Charbonnet did look good out there. Another thing that I want to point out was that, to me personally, I felt like in the second quarter, I saw glimpses of what the team could really be this year using their wide receivers. Because I didn't see that as much as I wanted to last year with Donovan Peoples-Jones. And even though he was injured and out this first game, I saw Nico Collins, I saw Tariq Black and what they could do, and I was just really, really impressed.
1: You were saying that you were a little bit worried, though. Right? Like you texted me during the game saying, I don't know about Michigan's chances to win the title.
0: I did say that, but that was after the first fumble from Shea.
1: You know, McCaffrey looks good. He's running. That game, we didn't have our two starting offensive tackles who were Mm -hmm. injured. That, as you know, was the key theme from prior seasons where the two offensive tackles were like turnstiles and the season where we lost two quarterbacks and John O'Corn had to stand up there. Mm -hmm. And so last game, we had no offensive tackles either. But we kind of weathered the storm. So hopefully everyone gets back from injury and the machine is clicking by the time we play Ohio State. Every week on Rival Watch, we will see what our absolute favorites, not actually our favorites, the Purdue Boilermakers and the Ohio State Buckeyes were up to the past week. Kathy, will you tell us what happened this week with Purdue?
0: Sucks for Purdue, man. This is not how anyone thought the season would start for Purdue. This is the third straight year in a row under coach Jeff Brom, where Purdue lost its first game of the season. The team was chugging along, doing all right. You know, they had a 31-14 lead. Their quarterback, Elijah Sindelar had little trouble against Nevada's defense. And their defense only allowed 99 yards during the first half.
1: I love texting my Purdue friends ironic gifts of trains and choo-choo in text form.
0: That's so funny. So the second half, Purdue, they just collapsed. Nevada scored 27 points and had 20 unanswered points. The blame is pretty well spread out against the offense, the defense, and special teams. You saw a lot of drop balls, turnovers, and penalties.
1: Last year was just like that. It was so crazy for the Purdue football program. To start the year, they played many games where they were up and they would collapse just like that. And then when they played Ohio State, they destroyed Ohio State. It was the New England Patriot Boilermakers out there.
0: Last week, in total, you saw five turnovers. And in the final 18 minutes of the game, you saw Purdue squander a 17-point lead. The final straw was when Nevada's true freshman kicker, Brandon Talton, got a 56-yard field goal as time ran out.
1: And he got a scholarship right after the game. True freshman kicker kicking a 56-yard field goal. We're definitely a big Brandon Talton podcast, and I think this week we're going to name the podcast after him. What do you think, Kathy? He beat your rivals.
0: I think that sounds good. The man deserves a scholarship. The man deserves to be named after our podcast.
1: What is your feeling right now on the bucket? Do you think you guys win the bucket?
0: I'm going to say that we win the bucket this year. I think with Michael Penix, I mean, Peyton Ramsey, I love you. But with Michael Penix, we'll take some more chances with their offense by Thanksgiving. He'll have plenty of games to have warmed up. I don't want to wish badly on any team. But if Purdue continues on this track, then, you know, I think the bucket's ours this year. So Jeff, what happened with OSU this week?
1: It's always hard to tell with game one. It's one of those football coaching chestnuts that a team improves the most between game one and game two. The Buckeyes definitely looked like the number one team in the Big Ten in the first quarter, but then there were the other three quarters. They scored 28 points. Justin Fields comes out and he runs, has a 50-yard run, throws passes. And then they lose the next three and a half quarters, 21 to 17, when Florida Atlantic made a slight adjustment.
0: That's quite a big turnaround from the beginning of the game and the big lead they had versus losing a lot of points in the next three and a half quarters. What do you think about Fields? Is he actually good and worth the hype?
1: I think it's hard to tell, especially given the Jekyll and Hyde nature of the first 28 points versus the rest of the game. Part of it can be explained by Ohio State turtling, trying to hide the playbook after being up so much. But part of it is Florida Atlantic adjusting to tighter coverage on the receivers, and playing fields for passes more. Fields started making mistakes, started throwing it errantly. The jury is still out, but until we beat them, they're still number one.
0: We'll just have to see in a couple weeks how Ohio State does against Indiana.
1: One other segment that we want to do is called Major Key. And for those of you who are DJ Khaled fans, there was this whole story where he was on a boat, he was lost in the Florida Keys which actually kind of makes no sense because you're on the keys. There are so many houses there, but he started Snapchatting and I'm definitely too old to use Snapchat, but he was Snapchatting and saying inspirational things about his impending demise and how we should all live life fully. And so Snapchat actually gave him his own emoji, which is this golden key and it was on the top of his profile and he definitely leaned into it. He started tweeting, like, you should moisturize, you should drink more, you should eat fruits.
0: Absolutely. DJ Khaled has become a very supportive person in my life. I know when I've had some tougher times and the going gets tough and I need some motivation and someone who tells me to keep going and to hold my head up high, that's definitely DJ Khaled. When we saw him in concert last year, Jaffa with Demi Lovato, he definitely had some inspirational things to say as well. But today, we're going to talk about what we consider to be the major keys to enjoying college football.
1: The segment is named after DJ Khaled, and we're going to give you a major key to what we consider something important that you can enjoy football with, our idiosyncratic take on it. So, Kathy, we were at the win. With my blackjack winnings, you placed your first sportsbook bet. How did you feel about that?
0: I did place my first sportsbook bet. I felt great, it was super exciting. I am not a person who had ever bet on anything. I'm not a gambler at all, very risk averse. But with some blackjack winnings, we were like, why not? So we went over to the counter with the big screens, folks sitting there carefully placing bets, watching games, and it just all felt really real and official, and I felt really cool. So we walk up to the counter, and we place some significant bets for both our teams. So on the Indiana side, I placed a bet for Indiana basketball to take it all the way, and those bets were 40 to 1 odds. I didn't feel comfortable placing a bet for Indiana football enthusiastic as I am about them. Maybe next year I will after they take the title this year.
1: And you said that you just wanted to sit there and watch the games, right? Like The, the way that they encourage you to bet more is to have amazing food, drinks, mm-hmm. all these TVs around, and, and you kept saying, man, if only I lived here, I would watch a game here all the time.
0: That is what I said. I love the setup. Comfy chairs. Great food, lots of drinks, and lots of big TV screens to, to watch the game for. And, and why not place a bet while you're at it to make it even more interesting? How did you feel about the Michigan bets that you placed, Jeff?
1: On Who Who Hail, we're pretty apolitical when it comes to sports betting and what we root for, as long as you're being responsible. For me, I thought that the odds weren't great on Michigan that I was getting. But it was more a sentimental, here's a good luck ticket. Let me put down 20 bucks on Michigan football and Michigan basketball. Support coach Juwan Howard and support Jim Harbaugh's big quest to finally beat Ohio State and get into the playoffs. I think Alabama and Clemson are so good. But it was worth putting down a bet.
0: This week for Major Key, we're going to talk about how Vegas sports lines work.
1: So the major key for this week is the point spread, which is known by different names, the line on the game, the spread on the game, how many points you're going to take. Basically, in one sentence, it is an adjustment to the final score. And the, the way that they set the line is so that people who bet money would bet on both sides. So the way it works is, say, Michigan is playing a directional school in Ann Arbor at the big house. Kathy, you know how we love those directional schools, right?
0: Mm-hmm. We do love them.
1: And so if it was a straight up bet, Michigan directional school that's taking money to come here to play in Ann Arbor, probably people aren't going to bet too much money on the directional school.
0: Unless it's Appalachian State.
1: Kev, don't remind us about that really, really sad first game. No one wants to hear about it. A typical Michigan versus directional school game. No one would bet on the directional school. So the idea of setting a spread, setting a line is we give whoever's betting on the directional school additional points. If the line is Michigan by 30 points, if you're betting on the directional school, if Michigan wins by less than 30 points, you win your bet. Does that make sense to you, Kathy?
0: That does make sense. So I know for this week, the line for Indiana and Eastern Illinois is 35. I guess if Eastern Illinois wins by less than 35 points, then folks betting in favor of Eastern Illinois would win. Is that how it works? If Indiana wins. If Indiana wins. Yes. Yeah.
1: So Indiana would have to... If you bet on Indiana, Indiana would have to win by By more more than than 35 35 points. In order for you to win that bet. Vegas always knows. But that way, enough people will bet on both sides of the bet. Whereas if it were just straight up, then everyone would bet on Michigan. That's
0: fair. And
1: then Vegas would have to pay and you wouldn't win that much money. And then if Appalachian State happens... Everyone, this is their money.
0: It's funny that you explain this, Jeff, because during the NCAA tournament, I didn't understand how sports lines worked. And so I was in a competition with some coworkers, and I thought it was, are they going to win or are they going to lose? And so there were some very obvious games where I was like, I had this in the bag. I know who's going to win. And I did get the winning team right, but I didn't take into any account the lines. And so I actually ended up coming in last place out of all the folks that were playing, which I was very surprised to hear about. But once they explained the lines, it then made sense to me.
1: One thing you're great at, though, is trying to set the lines. So what we do is we say, hey, when Michigan plays Indiana, just mm-hmm. knowing what we know now in the season, what do you think the line should be? And I think last year, when I asked you that question early in the season, You said a great line, so I'm going to surprise you with this. What do you think the line will be in the Michigan-Indiana game for this year with your new quarterback? Just so we have the prediction on the record and our listeners can evaluate your prediction.
0: Jeff, oh man, putting me on the spot. It is very early in the season and hard to tell, and I'm going to think a little bit out loud here. On the Indiana side, we have a really promising offense. Penix, he did really great his first game couple interceptions, but one of his first games, he still has some time to warm up. On the Michigan side, kind of similar story with the offense. I mean, you saw some really good plays. You saw the potential of what the team could be offensively. Think defensively, in my opinion, it didn't feel as strong as last year. But I did see some things that were promising. Considering that we were up at the half last year, Indiana was.
1: Give me um, the line, Chance. No I more know, pontificating. I know. I, I'm give me thinking, the line.
0: I'm thinking out loud. I am going to give it, the line will be 17.
1: If you place the bet on Michigan, Michigan has to win by more than 17, 17. points. Yes. Well, wow. yes. you know that that's your intellectual line, but emotionally, you think it's straight up Oh, Oh, emotionally, just...
0: it's going to be Indiana 50.
1: Okay, there you go. <laughs> Every week on our One City Thing segment, we'll highlight a special place in Bloomington and Ann Arbor that people can go back to when they're in town for game day. Kathy, what is your special place for this week?
0: This week for Bloomington, the Comedy Attic is a comedy club with stand-up shows and open mic nights. It's located on the corner of 4th and Walnut and is southeast of campus. It's literally the size of an attic in a very intimate setting. Its reputation is absolutely amazing in the comedy world. They're comedians who will only play at the biggest cities and venues in the country, and they actually make a stop by Bloomington to play at the Comedy Attic.
1: This was the weekend of the MSU basketball game we talked about last week, and basketball games are shorter than football ones. It was a noon game, and we found ourselves in Bloomington trying to find something to do before dinner, and we literally walked past this venue Being the Comedy Attic, Mm -hmm. you see it sort of as you're walking by and it's upstairs. And I've been trying to get more into comedy. So after this great win over MSU and we spend maybe an hour or two rushing the court and Mm -hmm. hugging the players and taking photos, we decided on a whim to see whether there's a show available at the Comedy Attic.
0: It turns out when we got to the line that the show was indeed sold out, but the person at the counter was nice enough to let us hang out in case people didn't show up.
1: And they had an internal accounting issue too because it was sold out. They couldn't actually sell us tickets on a credit card and mm-hmm. I'd run out of cash. So there's this adventure where we ran over to the ATM to get cash. You kept the spot in mind. We mm-hmm. came back and we didn't really know at this point how popular the act was. We knew nothing about it. But sure enough, we had the cash. Two tickets became available. And as you said, the list of comedy acts that have played at the comedy attic They have this preview video where they play the different acts that have been there. And it's just amazing the types of acts that will schedule there. The list of venues will be New York, London, L.A., Bloomington.
0: Who did we end up seeing that night and what did you think of them?
1: We saw the Lucas Brothers, twins Kenny and Keith. And the show was just so cerebral and smart. They started out asking whether or not we had read Bertrand Russell's The History of Western Philosophy. And as a big nerd, of course, I'd read it, but I don't want to raise my hand because I didn't want to be in the act. And Kathy made fun of me. The act was just so well layered and constructed and so clever. I just really enjoyed how the jokes were slow played. The act isn't in your face funny. It's more let's set the stage and then the joke will come back and Mm then it'll come back and it'll come back. Did you like the show?
0: I love the show. And I agree with Jeff. It wasn't so much shock value, crass humor to get folks kind of shocked and and laughing. It was that intelligent, witty, kind of slow paced humor that built up. And upon reflecting, you realize, wow, that's actually really hilarious. Jeff, what's your one city thing for this week for Ann Arbor?
1: So the inspiration for this segment is actually the Campus Eats show Mm -hmm. on the Big Ten Network and the Big Ten Network TV channel being so profitable that it's inspired other lesser conferences like the (laughs) Pac-12 to do a TV show network as well. And we'll see how successful that is. Between games, they always put up Campus Eats and it really makes me want to visit the different towns and eat the different things. It makes me so hungry. Kathy, you like that show too, right?
0: I actually haven't seen too much of the show, but I'm eager to watch more of it this season. I do think I've seen like maybe a few clips here and there, and it does look really appealing. But for me, it just works up too much of an appetite. Eager to to catch some more of it.
1: We just thought that based on that idea, we could also have some suggestions as people listen to this podcast for where they should go. And so my campus eats for Ann Arbor is definitely Tamakan, which is this Japanese restaurant that when I was in law school, I ate there every night. They have great dumplings, great noodles, soba, a lot of different good noms for you to eat before and after the game.
0: That sounds delicious.
1: Now, usually I don't do this, but uh, go ahead on and break him off with a little preview.
0: Jeff, Jeff, I don't think we're supposed to say that anymore.
1: Yeah, I guess we're not supposed to, but do you mean to tell me that after the show, we're not going to have an after party?
0: Jeff, we can't say that anymore.
1: I know that we're not an art Kelly podcast here, and there's an ongoing conversation in our culture about whether or not we can separate the artist from the art. What's your take on that, especially with everything that's happening in comedy, all the shows that we've seen, that conversation happening a little bit here in sports as well?
0: That's a hard question. Maybe if there's a world where we can take the art for itself, so for instance, if artists are long dead or there's no harm being done to others, but a lot of what you see nowadays with artists around still able to hurt people, I think it's fair that the art has to be sequestered a bit. It's too hard to appreciate the art, knowing that the artist is still capable of harming people.
1: And that's why R. Kelly is now my neighbor, living several blocks away from me in downtown Chicago at the Metropolitan Correctional Center at the MCC.
0: Wait, that's the jail with the sharp edges and narrow windows, right? I heard this story about how someone tried to climb down from those windows and escape.
1: Yeah, that's where he's at. I heard he just got released in the general jail population this week.
0: Man, that's so crazy. So, Jeff, what's our preview for this week's Michigan game?
1: I think it's wonderful that we honor the armed forces at the big house. Kathy, you're running the Marine Corps Marathon in D.C. this year, right?
0: I am running the Marine Corps Marathon this year. On your recommendation, Jeff, because you had such a great experience running it last year.
1: It's a great race. It ends at the Iwo Jima Memorial, and you climb up there to end the race, and it's like you're conquering Iwo Jima. Mm -hmm. And so many of the armed forces members run in the race, some of them in full weighted gear, which is so impressive. And there's these amazing chants as you run the race for you to look forward to. Go Army! Beat Navy! And then someone yells, go Air Force! And everyone else yells, no one cares about Air Force.
0: But we do love our pilots on this podcast. Go Air Force!
1: We can be an Air Force podcast. Kathy, you can be my wingman anytime.
0: You can be mine. If you couldn't tell, we're also a big Tom Cruise podcast.
1: Do you know what the star stands for in the Navy logo, Kathy?
0: You were just telling me about that. Apparently, if Navy beats Army in the annual Army-Navy rivalry game, Navy gets to wear the star. Do you think Michigan gets a star this weekend?
1: As I said, I love that Coach Harbaugh schedules a service academy in the big house and considers it a patriotic duty to showcase them. The Vegas line, now that all our listeners know how a line works from our major key segment, as I last checked, is Michigan by 23.
0: Major key. We love setting our own lines before games and throughout the season, even before the official Vegas lines come out.
1: That being said, Army had 11 wins last season, and they were awesome. I think that it's a mistake generally from a season wins perspective and from the perspective of trying to get into the playoffs to schedule a service academy.
0: Wait, why is that? You just said all these great things.
1: A service academy is hard to play and hard to beat. And if you beat them, you don't really get much credit for winning. But if you lose, that totally destroys your chance of getting into playoffs. Plus, what makes it so difficult, have you heard of the triple option? What is known as the flex bone?
0: That's a type of offense, right? The one where they run it a lot?
1: Kevin, you're familiar with option offenses generally, right? The one that Ohio State runs or the beautiful looking Penn State ones from prior years?
0: That's the one where once the offense reads the defensive alignment, either the quarterback or the running back can have the option to run the ball. And Saquon Barkley devastated you guys that game I watched you play against Penn State.
1: We just didn't know how, whether to key on him or key on the quarterback who could also run, and he just ran past all of us to our great sadness. But the triple option is a particular variant of the option offense, where instead of two people, the quarterback and the running back having the option to run, now you have an option of three people. Quarterback and two running backs behind him, or a quarterback, a running back, and a fullback, and anyone can run the ball.
0: And why does Navy run this offense?
1: So it's hard for service academies to recruit talented football players, right? If you think about a Navy sailor or an Army cadet, they're all kind of the same size, right? And this type of offense really evens out the playing field for them in terms of recruiting. Each of these people, as long as they're gritty and athletic and can run the ball, they can take the ball and run with it. You don't really need your quarterback to be able to pass that much.
0: That makes sense. I heard that Don Brown spends some time every practice on preparing for Army.
1: And that's what I was just about to say. You have to specially prepare to defend the triple option if you don't see it that much. And with NCAA rules limiting practice time and the fact that Army really isn't like anyone else we play, so if we practice for them, it doesn't help us in any other game. I just think it's really lavish for us to have to spend that practice time preparing for them.
0: But you still think Michigan will win and get that star this weekend, right?
1: It's going to be a slowdown, pounding, run-out-the-clock, literally run-out-the-clock type of game. It's going to be a slugfest. But I think Don Brown's got this. I mean, he's spent all his time on practice, right? What about you, Kathy? Any thoughts on what Coach Allen and quarterback Penix has in the bag for this week?
0: From what I know, Eastern Illinois has a new head coach this year, Adam Crushing, who was a member of Northwestern's coaching staff in charge of tight ends from 04 to 08, and then took over the offensive line. So they have two quarterbacks returning this year, but their leading receiver is no longer there. And defensively, Eastern Illinois really suffered last year. So I will say for this one, it seems like we don't have too much to worry about. I don't want to undermine our opponent, but the real showing will be in week three of football, OSU.
1: One of the great pleasures for me during the season, especially on Mondays and Tuesdays, is the AP poll and the coaches poll come out and just try to look up how the results of the past week affect the rankings. And the AP poll has Michigan, the Michigan Wolverines, ranked number seven in the country. Kevi, is IU ranked in the country?
0: I'm so enthusiastic about IU football. But one thing I just don't get, why are we ranked around number 12 in the Big Ten?
1: And that's number 12 in the Big Ten, right? Like, not number 12 nationally? Isn't the Big Ten only supposed to have 10 teams and you're ranked twelve?
0: It makes no sense. I mean, are we that bad? Penix was good. What's up? I mean, people just really underrate our team. I feel like we're the underdogs that no one cares about. And we just got to prove them wrong this year. I mean, between the huge Huskers sign at Kirkwoods that I mentioned, the empty seats at Lucas Oil Stadium, and the fact that we're rated 12 in the Big Ten, I'm just disappointed.
1: We were texting each other this past week that amazing Bill Connolly graphic where he charts out graphically Indiana's S&P Plus history.
0: Right, the S P Plus rating. That's an advanced statistical model that performs well against the Vegas spread and line we just talked about.
1: And you know when someone puts up the graphical historical statistics of a team with a I'm really sorry disclaimer, it's bad.
0: That was hard to see. According to Bill Connolly, the two best IU teams of the last 30 years went 5-6 and
1: 5-7. That might be why you're the only Indiana football fan in Chicago. Shut up, Jeff. More seriously, though, I think people are just a little bit burned by the stride-out with four wins against non-conference opponents and maybe win one Big Ten game the rest of the way. So they're withholding judgment on the Hoosier football program.
0: That's fair, but I still think Indiana is better than 12th in the Big Ten. Come on. It's more like 12 wins. We're going to take it all the way to the championship.
1: Or at least hashtag 9 Indiana. I think we can get behind that hashtag here on the podcast.
0: Hashtag 9 Indiana. Why not hashtag 12WIndiana? Let's get that championship. And that's a wrap for episode two of Hoo Hoo Hail, covering week one of college football. Stay tuned next week as we cover Indiana's game against Eastern Illinois and Michigan's game against Army.
1: I'm looking forward to a game of all runs and no passes. Our guardian angel, Mike DeBoard, would be so proud.
0: He will be. Bye, everyone. Hoo Hoo.
1: Hail.